Chapter One of Two Sides to Every Story from a South Australian Standpoint. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsty. Two Sides to Every Question from a South Australian Standpoint by Maud Jean Frank. Chapter One The Little House in the Back Street. Click, 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 click. The sounds fell sharply and distinctly on the ear, not with the soothing monotony of the pendulum swing, not with the dreary crackle of the fire as it glows and flares, bursting into little playful jets of flame and burning down into soft grey dust, not like the pleasant singing of the kettle on the hob. It was a monotony that wearied, that smote the unaccustomed, sensitive brain with its impatient little taps and spoke of everything decidedly hard and practical, its very rapidity scorning the poetical. Every tap was a stitch, and loudly proclaimed itself such, with its irritating voice, as if one cared to be continually reminded of the fact. Commend us to La Silenceuse, which has the modesty to perform its good deeds without demonstration or proclamation. The click-click in question, however, came through the window of a by no means unpoetical room, albeit it was in a little house situated in one of the back streets of our city of Adelaide. A more unpromising neighbourhood for the cultivation of poetry could scarcely exist. Houses of all sizes and in every stage of discomfort, unswept, ungarnished, stood on every side, with here and there a window devoted to threads and tapes and doubtful-looking lollies, while the inevitable public-house stood at the corner. At intervals, indeed, there were one or two habitations in more respectable condition. Among them was that from which the loud tones of the Wheeler and Wilson made themselves audible. A low row of palings and a narrow strip of paved yard separated the house from footpath and road, and held the premises safe from intrusive footsteps or too close inspection. The window ledge was filled with flowers, geraniums and fuchsias, and musk plants affording both a verdant screen and a sweet perfume. The machine was close to the window, but only a passing glimpse of the worker could be seen through the clustering leaves, and the click-click soon became too familiar a sound in that neighbourhood to attract curious eyes. Nevertheless, as we before said, to those who did see within, the sight was by no means wanting in either a certain degree of prettiness or poetry. The room was a tiny one, and its furniture but scanty, and quickly inventoried, three or four cedar chairs, a colonial sofa, a backless one, a small square table in the middle of the floor, beneath which was spread a piece of good, though well-worn and rather faded carpeting. The poetry of this room was made up of other things, the drape of the rich old table-cover that told a tale of other times, the well-bound books upon the table and bookshelves, those slender bookshelves hanging on one side of the fireplace, surmounted by a bunch of emu's feathers, the handsome crystal vase always filled with flowers at every season of the year, and two large, neatly framed crayon sketches of pretty English scenery. These made up the poetry of the room. The polished sewing machine itself was the handsomest piece of furniture there, and was duly appreciated and cared for as such. At this machine, day after day, and nearly the whole day through, sat a young and interesting girl, turning its wheels with weary feet, and arranging and rearranging her work with slender fingers that almost looked too slender for a long continuance of such employment. 
There was something very attractive in the small graceful head, with its abundant and well-arranged masses of dark brown hair, in the sweep of the eyelashes as they bent over her work, in the curve of her mouth with its half-melancholy droop, in the contour of the cheek with its clear though pale complexion. But the eyes, once uplifted, changed everything, for they were really beautiful eyes, full, dark, and velvety, and glowing with expression. We should never have looked for such eyes in the back streets of the city, and might have searched as fruitlessly among our upper colonial ten. It was, however, just such eyes as these that day after day turned from the plodding work of the machine for a moment's rest to the refreshment of green leaves and flowers that made her little window a very bower of beauty. Nettie Alton, though she sat day after day at her window, apparently alone, was not really so. There were four tiny rooms in the humble little tenement, and in the one behind, looking out into another small paved yard, and neatly fitted up to answer the purpose of both kitchen and sitting-room, there stood an easy-chair, carefully cushioned with faded damask pillows, but large and roomy, and so constructed that at any moment it could be transformed into a couch. And it was here that day after day, never moving excepting to bed at night, a fragile invalid reclined, a little wasted figure with silvery bands of hair smoothly parted under a widow's cap, with a quiet, placid face and soft, sweet eyes, with that far-off distant look in their glances that spoke of another land which was not far off. This was Nettie's mother. A passionate love existed between mother and daughter. Nettie's whole heart was bound up in her mother's comfort and happiness. For her she laboured early and late, adding from time to time little trifles of luxury to their tiny home, or tempting viands for the invalid's delicate appetite. It was such a joy to her to work for her mother, and her heart turned cold as even the shadow of a fear crept over her that that joy might not long be hers. They had not long been residents of the city, only indeed a few months. Their home had been among the pleasant southern hills, a lonely sheltered farm, a pretty homestead in a glorious bowery garden. A very happy home it had been, and Nettie and her younger brother Tom had grown up within its shelter, almost without a care. There were only two of them, and they were everything to each other. But this is a world of change, and death, which brings desolation into so many homes, did not spare this. Terrible changes it brought, a revelation of debt and mortgage, and heavy losses which swept away all that had been theirs, all that they had believed was theirs so firmly. With Mr. Alton's death everything went, and in bitter sorrow, half-stunned by the unexpected climax, Mrs. Alton, who had long been an invalid, was so entirely prostrated that she could neither advise nor resolve. "'What will you do, Nettie?' a neighbour who had kindly assisted them in their heaviest need exclaimed, a day or two after the general sale. "'Your poor mother needs all your help. She can do nothing to aid you.' "'No,' said Nettie, her eyes filling with tears. But if we can only keep her with us, we shall not want her to do anything to help. It will come hard like on you, was the sympathising response, and Tom is young and cannot gain much. Have you any plans? There are so few children about here, and the government school takes up what there is. I'm most afeard there's not much chance of your getting a school. No chance at all, Mrs. Brown, said Nettie decidedly. I've thought it all over. A school, too, if I could get it, would keep me too much away from dear mother. Besides, there's Tom. It would not do for him to throw away all the education father took so much trouble to give him. 
College is out of the question now. That was what he was fitting for. But he will do well in an office, and so we must go to Adelaide. I believe it will be best for dear mother, too, to be quite away from everything here. But what can you do in Adelaide? Plenty of things that I cannot do in the country. And turning round, she placed her hand on her sewing machine. This is to be our breadwinner, Mrs. Brown, she continued. We shall get on very well, I have no doubt. God will not forsake those who trust in him. In this spirit, and warmly seconded by her brother, Nettie had gathered together the little money and few articles of furniture that remained to them after the sale, and bidding farewell to the old home that had become almost hateful to her, had slowly travelled up to Adelaide in one of the large wagons that had formerly been their own, but was now in possession of the neighbour who had volunteered both to drive them in and assist in finding a house for them. It must be central, Nettie had said. I shall try to work at the shops first. And so, in as central a position as possible, though to suit their small means, of necessity in the back streets, they had taken and entered the little house with its strip of paved yard, and all Nettie's ingenuity had been taxed to make it as homelike as possible. She was a passionate lover of flowers, and when they left their home among the hills, her first thought had been to transfer as many of her pets as would bear transportation in pots. With these she filled the windows, back as well as front, that they might be pleasant for her mother's eye to rest upon. Morning and night she attended to her plants with loving care, and no one knew how much comfort and simple happiness they afforded to her mother, who watched her as she lingered over them, removing dead leaves and supporting feeble stems, or supplying them with water from the old brown jug. The choicest specimens were in the back window, they brightened up the dark little room, and many a time, as Mrs. Alton sat alone, weary with her pain and weakness and sorrow, the only sound in the house, the incessant click-click of the machine that told the tale of her child's labour, the sight of the delicate flowers and fresh green leaves looking so beautiful, even in that close neighbourhood where so few peeps of sunshine stole in, did wonderfully revive the drooping heart and raise the worn spirit into something like gladness and hope. Nettie had been successful in her search for work. Sewing machines in those days were less numerous than they now are, when almost every house is supplied with one, good or bad. She had learnt so completely to manage hers that the shops very readily provided her with more work than she could easily undertake. What still more rejoiced her, her brother Tom had found no difficulty in obtaining a situation in the office of a wealthy merchant, and through the agency of one from whom she had little expected such help. Good Farmer Brown was a man of few words at any time, but he was a good practical sympathiser, and these, after all, are the true friends in time of sorrow or difficulty. He deeply felt in his own rough heart for the widow and orphans so differently brought up and educated from his own numerous family and what he felt led him to do all he could do to help. His first step, after seeing them snugly housed, with a plentifully stocked larder of his wife's providing, enough to last them for a week at least, had been to go straight to the wholesale house from which he always purchased his own stores. A few words from him to the principal had resulted in the engagement of Tom, who had accompanied him, and the good man went home next day with his own heart all the lighter for having lifted the weight from some heavy ones. It was quiet within that little house. There was plenty of life without, plenty of noise too, for though the street was a narrow one, it was not without a certain amount of traffic, 
wagons loaded with stone or wood rattled or lumbered by as they passed on to the more regular thoroughfares butchers and bakers carts dashed by or hand burrows moved more slowly paper boys occasionally rushed noisily up and down to and from the offices above all the street was filled with children in every stage of years and dirtiness slovenly girls and idle boys with apparently nothing to do stood about or lounged on doorsteps or in the gutters or ran races or worse still quarrelled or fought together any hour of the day while their mothers stood at their doorsteps and gossiped with their neighbours or screamed out words of threat to their offspring in language that pained and shocked the ears of our gentle machine worker she scarcely knew which to pity most the misguided children or the wretched mothers but her heart often grew sad at the glimpses she caught of miserable homes in that same little street she traced the misery in many cases to the house at the corner where the money that should have made clean and tidy homes and well cared for well-fed children was recklessly frittered away in drink in a city there must of necessity be back streets there must be houses for the poor as well as the rich but what need for the wretchedness that is to be found even in our fair land what need for the curse the oath the obscene language what need for the dirty ragged and half-starved looking children where work is plentiful and food abundant what need for ignorance when education is so freely provided nettie thought over all this as she sat day after day at the sewing machine turning out showy garments or delicate fabrics just as her employers supplied her and weaving in with every stitch a tangled maze of thought as sounds and sights saluted her from which she would gladly have turned away tom was a great comfort to her in those days it was so pleasant to expect his coming home in the evenings and his coming did his mother so much good he was such a kind and thoughtful son such a loving brother unless she was very busy she generally closed her machine a little before he was likely to arrive that she might nicely prepare the dinner tea which they always took together in the little back room with their mother in the winter there was the snug bright fire and the little trimly kept lamp shining pleasantly on the white cloth and glinting on the bright spoons and little old-fashioned teapot everything was cosy and warm and doubly attractive to the boy as he came in tired and cold from his day's writing or if it was summer the open doors and windows the fresh flowers the cool salad simple and cheap but deliciously crisp were equally inviting Nettie rarely went back to her machine after tea, excepting on very busy occasions. It was so noisy, that Wheeler and Wilson, useful as it was. So she arranged and fixed and tacked her work for the next day in the little back room, while she talked and laughed with her brother, or listened to him while he read. After all, there were many happy evenings passed in the little unpretending house in the back street, and as spring came round again even their invalid mother revived so much that she was able to move about from room to room and cheer her daughter by occasional visits as she sat working at her machine End of chapter one